0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely
1: zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion.
0: This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. For us, a
1: personal meeting with an asset, you know, that cannot be replicated. You know, you can have communications over kind of computer email, other impersonal means, you know, how we call it. But but ultimately, with some of of this importance, um, you need a a CIA case officer, an operations officer uh, to really look the asset in the eye and get a real assessment um, of what we're dealing with.
0: So, Mark, did Balawi agree to a meeting with us right away, or was was there some back and forth?
1: There really was indeed a great deal of back and forth. You know, he insisted first that the Jordanian officer be present, and then he initially suggested um, several locations that, that we did not deem to be safe. And now, you know, looking back, I think those were some signs that, you know, that we probably should have taken a bit more seriously, although it's not unusual for an asset to suggest meeting locations. No one thought this was gonna be, you know, sitting down, you know, and having a picnic or a barbecue with someone you know, not only we had never met, but someone who we thought infiltrated, you know, the most dangerous ter- terrorist group on the planet. But ultimately, you know, this, the, the security protocols broke down and he was, he was, he was treated as a, as almost a visiting dignitary. Our security team did ask um, for him to step out of the car and they were going to search him. The problem is there was, you know, this was, this was far too close to, uh, to the kind of the team that was on the ground. And, and before they could disarm him in any fashion, you know, he, he, he had a suicide vest on, he detonated himself and seven of them were killed. There was an attempt to search him uh, at the last moment, but it was uh, it was far too late.
0: Mark Polymeropoulos served for 26 years in the Central Intelligence Agency before retiring last year. He was an operations officer who rose to the senior ranks of the agency. His positions included field and headquarters assignments covering the Middle East, Europe, Eurasia, and counterterrorism. Mark the recipient of many of CIA's most distinguished medals, was on our show once before talking about what it was like to be an operations officer. And today, he joins us as part of our Spy Stories series. We'll be right back with that discussion after a quick break. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. Mark, welcome back to Intelligence Matters. It's great to have you again.
1: Thanks for being here.
0: Um, So the first time The first time we had you on, Mark, we talked about what it was like to be a CIA operations officer. And this time, we're going to talk about a particular story. Um, This is part of our spy story series. And we're going to talk about something pretty painful for our agency. And I'd like to go through it kind of step by step. And since I lived through this as well, I'm going to add my own thoughts here and there as we as we talk about this. Let me start with three pieces of context. The first is that you were involved in the operation that we're going to talk about, but you're not at liberty to say in what context you were involved. Correct?
1: That's right. So I was I was indeed closely involved. Um, you know, with the operations. You know, it's something that certainly haunts me to this day. And I I don't talk about it publicly. Um, You know, there's much that's been written about it. And some of it accurately, some of it not. But it's just not appropriate for me to say, you know, the actual location where I was um, during the agency rules don't allow me to disclose that.
0: So no worries, we will absolutely respect that. So another piece of context is the times. And it's, it's the late 2000s. So 2006, 2007, 2008. And what I want to ask you, Mark, to sort of kick this off is from where you were sitting and the work you were doing, what was the degree of threat that you saw from Al-Qaeda to us here in the United States? What did that threat look like to you?
1: Sure. So, so you know, at that time, and it's, you know, it's certainly several years after 9-11, but Al-Qaeda still remained a key terrorist threat to the United States, you know, even in that time period. So you think to you know, the 2006 plot to detonate aircraft, I think it was bombs hidden in soft drinks. Then there was Zazi's attempt to bomb the New York City subway in 2009. You had the AQAP plots um, to strike the kind of the global aviation industry. So there was, you know, really a relentless and really seemingly almost, you know, never ending war. And it, it, at CIA, you know, you got to think of this as, you know, we're almost a soccer goalie. You know, so we make 20 saves in a game, but if one goes by, we lose. So there was just, you know, really enormous pressure. And then, you know, in particular, because the the leadership of Al Qaeda, both uh, bin Laden and, and Ayman Zawahiri were still on the loose.
0: So we were we were doing everything that we could to collect intelligence on Al Qaeda, both to identify any specific attack plotting anywhere in the world and to identify the locations of key Al Qaeda operatives so that the United States could remove them from the battlefield right? That was our number one priority at that time.
1: That's right. And and really, you know, the CT campaign um, at the time, and you you recall this well, was really multifaceted. You know, one was kind of this relentless, um, you know, pace of airstrikes um, against Al Qaeda kind of foot soldiers. Uh, uh, And the other was really the hunt for the leadership. And so, you know, you know, make no mistake, we had to try to kind of cut off the heads from the very top. So any intelligence related to the top echelons of Al Qaeda, including, you know, uh, Bin Laden and Zawahiri was absolutely of paramount importance. And remember, these are really hard targets. So the intelligence was very hard to come by. And so any kind of uh, nugget where we thought we had a, a real shot at finding either, you know, HVT one or two, um, you know, was was kind of put at the top of the list of not just, you know, the counterterrorism center, but the CIA as a whole.
0: Okay. So Mark, the last piece of context, and you've mentioned his name a couple of times, Ayman al-Zawahiri. He's important to our story here. So what was his role at that time?
1: Sure. So, you know, he was kind of technically he was the number two in, in Al-Qaeda. He's an interesting figure. You know, he was an Egyptian doctor by trade. It's certainly an elusive you know, figure. I think the State Department, you know, uh, still has a $25 million reward on his head. He was he was born in Cairo in the suburb of Mahdi, which is interesting because that's where you know many foreign diplomats live. And he went to medical school and he served as a doctor in the Egyptian army. And then he joins the Muslim Brotherhood and goes on to help found the Isla- uh, Egyptian Islamic Jihad ends up in Pakistan and then and then certainly uh, in Afghanistan they merge together with with Al Qaeda and you know Zawahiri then uh, becomes you know you know then there's some some controversy over this certainly he was considered the intellectual brains behind the movement but he's also considered you know the overall kind of operational commander as well so you know, there's a lot of focus and, you know, and and certainly in the media about the, the hunt for bin Laden, but Zawahiri is, is frankly, as far as the agency was concerned, you know, in terms of, you know, cutting off the heads of, of Al Qaeda was just as important.
0: Okay. So with, with all that as background, tell us about Humam al-Balawi, who was he, why were intelligence and security agencies so interested in him in that 2007, 2008 time period?
1: Sure. So, so, Ah, uh, Balawi was a you know Jordanian doctor. You know he, he came on the radar screen of the Jordanian security services. Um, uh, you know in that time period, you know he was first involved, as many are, on chat forums. So he's speaking out against the West, um, praising modern modern operations. And and you know as Jordan is a close CT partner of uh, of us of the United States government you know, we became aware of him as well. When, when you think back, there was nothing particularly special about that. Right. Um, we monitor a lot of uh, individuals such as Bowie, you know, and, and certainly every Middle Eastern service is going to monitor, monitor its own people for, for extremist tendencies.
0: So what happened to him in January of 2009?
1: Sure. So the, the Jordanians uh, finally arrested him. Um, you know, he, he crossed the line a bit. So as you're monitoring these chats, um, you know, you're, you're looking at kind of, you know, what they're espousing, you know, violence but, uh, but I think it, you know, they crossed the line. So they did arrest them, and, and and they claimed to then have turned him in prison. And so, you know, it's it's almost, you know, it's considered a jailhouse recruitment, but it's very common, of course, um, in Middle Eastern intelligence circles, you know, the host governments can have a great deal of control over what happens, you know, to the family members, for example. So it's not a traditional recruitment in the sense of how, you know, the CIA would conduct a full cycle of recruitment with a lot of vetting and a lot of, a lot of time on target. But it's not, you know, dissimilar to what, uh, you know, Middle Eastern services do. And, you know, we in the USG never met Balawi, Um, and then he, uh, you know, they send him off to Pakistan almost, you know, on a seating operation. Um, so the Jordanians send him off. We're we're, you know, we're in the background. Um, and ultimately it's, it's an attempt in one of, in fact, many such attempts, you know, one would make to, uh, to ultimately infiltrate, uh, Al Qaeda. But at that time, it's, it's, a, you know, it's an operation that we're paying attention to, but, uh, but nothing really uh, uh, that's you know kind of burning for us um, until some things happen later on, which I think we'll we'll get into.
0: So, Mark, do you know? Perhaps you don't what the what the conversations were like between him and the Jordanians. I mean, did he did this recruitment happen quickly? Did it did it take a period of time with of conversations with him? You know, what was the?
1: It, it was it was it was you know it was relatively quickly. I mean, I think it was you know probably not a, a great deal of personal meetings. You know, it was a jailhouse recruitment, and then it was. Um, some more meetings you know, after it was released and, and, and getting ready to deploy and, and you know ultimately it's, uh, it's it's again, it's not uh, something unusual for a Middle Eastern service because the belief is always that they have um, leverage uh, uh, over an individual due to family members still being um, present. So yeah I mean we were, we were aware of what the Jordanians were doing and you know the the key part was was not necessarily um, even the the nature of these discussions. it was what would he do once he hit. Um, South Waziristan. Yeah.
0: Do you know what he was promised in return for working for the Jordanians? I mean, obviously, staying out of jail was run, right? Um, but you know, a, what else would?
1: Right, right. I mean, that's, that's a great question, and you know, I think it would be kind of the the usual kind of mix of you know financial incentives and just you know staying safe, staying out of jail. Um, you know, they appealed to kind of just you know patriotism um, uh, uh, to him, and and so um, you know, again, the Middle Eastern services are not necessarily like us in terms of. You know, an ability to, to kind of throw around a lot of money, and and it would it would almost be, uh, you know, using a a different um, set of kind of motivations for recruitment, and a lot of it has to do with kind of you know uh, being you know it's a coercive threat against the family, but you know uh, it's a uh, it's uh, it's something that they that Middle Eastern services you know actually are quite effective at, uh, especially the Jordanians.
0: So they send him, and the the idea is for him to penetrate Al Qaeda to get to know the Al Qaeda guys, and hopefully to be able to report back on, on what he learns once he gets inside the group, correct? Right. So, so he leaves in,
1: and I believe is the spring of 2009. And he actually, you know, he makes it to South uh, Waziristan, a hub of Al Qaeda activity, a place where I spent, you know, years later, I spent a lot of time, you know, staring across, uh, uh, you know, from, uh, from Eastern Afghanistan. And so Balawi, after, you know, after months of kind of, you know, growing contact with the local extremists and, and and terrorists, you know, the Pakistani Taliban invite him to come live with them. And, and then he drops off the radar for some time. Um, and again, we are extremely busy uh, in, in the counterterrorism world, you know, with our Jordanian partners and many others. And so at this point, you know, we just wait and see. Uh, we know he's there. And, uh, and we're just seeing if he ever does resurface.
0: And then we, we the Jordanians, eventually uh, got two messages from him, right, that were particularly interesting, can you tell us about those messages? That's
1: right. So, see, and and one of the messages was was uh did did cause quite a bit of stir. So he actually sends a video, um, which shows him sitting next to a senior Al Qaeda member, you know, close to the leadership circles. And, and to us, this was you know pretty solid evidence that that you know one would hope um to have received that he had gained the trust of the of the rank and file, um, and also of the of senior Al Qaeda. So you know, in the intelligence business. Um, you know, we are we're always trying to validate an asset, and so you do this from from information they provide, and also from their bona fides. And this really is, you know, falls into the latter category. You know, you are who you say you are, and so there was considerable excitement with this video. Um, there was also a message that indicated that uh, Balaoui, and remember, it was a, a you know a doctor by training, that 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 Balaoui might be in a position to personally treat Zawahiri, and so you know, so here you go again in, in taking you know what you can call a a liaison source or a developmental asset or however you know it's it's kind of murky how you would consider balawi but but ultimately he starts rising um, to the top of our interest level because he might have access to in fact hbt2 and and then he seems to provide some information that corroborates what we knew about zawahiri's medical condition so again this is a big deal you know again think about the hunt for zawahiri it was it was of such critical importance to the you know to our entire kind of global war on terrorism um and, and at that point you start thinking that this is the best lead we've had to Al Qaeda's uh, senior leadership in in, in years. And I, and I look back and I recall that, you know, we were we were very excited. We were encouraged. Um, I remember, you know, writing an, an email to a colleague noting that, you know, this was it. This was the key lead that was going to lead us to HVT2. And, you know, looking back on that, um, you know, I look at that with some trepidation now. But uh, there was a palpable sense of excitement about this case, uh, uh, particularly as these, these two messages came in.
0: So he goes from, you know, somebody who's just... On the radar screen and we're not paying a lot of attention to to all of a sudden possibly one of the most important assets we have so it's a you know how fast that that happened is really interesting by the way this was this was the moment of my first interaction with the case so at this point in 2009 i was as you know mark the head of analysis at cia and i was visiting your spaces um, i was visiting with you and your team and you and your boss, I remember, cleared the room, kick, kicked out a bunch of people, so it was really just the three of us. And you and you and uh, your boss told me the entire story about Malawi. I don't know if you remember that, but but I still remember it like it was yesterday.
1: No, I, I, I certainly do, and, and you know and, and and you know I think it, it was it was warranted for you to receive such a briefing um, because this you know this. Uh, uh, was a, was a really big deal in terms of, you know, getting close access to, uh, to really an elusive, uh, elusive target.
0: So now the, the, the kind of one of the big turns comes and as you noted, we still had not met him, you know, and, and everyone, right. Everyone thought that we needed to meet him given his, his potential importance here. Why was it so important from an intelligence perspective to meet him? Sure. So you know, and if you look back, what did we want to get out of such absolutely. a meeting? So you
1: know, this is this now goes into kind of classic human, and the way that CIA would practice humans as well. So you remember that he was, of course, a uh, a jailhouse recruitment by the Jordanian service. So for us, a personal meeting with an asset, you know, it, it, that cannot be replicated. You know, it, it, whether it's you know, you can have communications over kind of computer, email, other impersonal means. You know how we call it, but but ultimately. With some of, of this importance, um, you need a you know a CIA case officer, an operations officer, uh, to really look the asset in the eye and, and get a real assessment um, of what we're dealing with. I mean, this is what I did for years and years, and that just cannot be replicated. So you know, so so you're, you're looking someone in the eye. You can also do things um, with kind of other personnel you bring to a meeting, such as you know polygraph an asset. Um, you can vet them kind of using techniques designed to see if they're if they're telling the truth or not. And and remember, you know, again, we had never met Balawi. So uh, uh, we had to, you know, I I have to kind of throw in here that the Jordanian case officer involved, you know, I I knew him, he was a, he was a, 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 you know, a great man. He, he was a Jordanian patriot. He appreciated and valued the cooperative relationship he had with you, you know, with the United States government in a liaison capacity. And he really was a tremendous ally. And and so, you know, and, and our officers loved him like a brother. You know, it, there's been a lot talked about that he was young and inexperienced, and that's fine. then yeah, that's there's no ding on that. It's just a fact. But again, the the meeting was designed where we would have uh, both, you know, the Jordanian case officer there, but also a U.S. team involved for a really kind of fulsome debrief. Uh, and again, if you can talk to someone for hours, you know, and and also have substantive expert experts at the ready, you know, you can learn so much about your about your agent. You know, and because we're also looking at, you know, does he have what it takes to go back and and continue to infiltrate the group? Will he be able to kind of provide us with targeting data and things we really need? I mean, there's a, there's such a variety of uh, a menu of what we would want this um, uh, agent to do, and uh, and and you know, uh, Michael, you know this well. You know, CIA and I and I talk about this often. CIA has really perfected the art of manhunting. and, and people get uncomfortable when I say that, but that's what we have done uh, in the global war on terrorism. So you do this using all sorts of means, but a human agent on the ground um, really is a key piece of this puzzle.
0: We're going to take a quick break. i we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Mark. So Mark, did Balawi agree to a meeting with us right away, or was, was there some back and forth? How did that right. work?
1: Right. And, and, you know, there really was indeed a great deal of back and forth you know, he insisted first that the Jordanian officer be present and that and he initially suggested um, several locations that that we did not deem to be safe. And now, you know, looking back, I think those were some signs that, you know, that we probably should have taken, uh, uh, you know, a, a bit more seriously, although it's not unusual for an asset to suggest meeting locations. Um, and really, it's up ultimately it's up to the, you know, the case officer involved and, and the station involved and the agency as a whole to, to control the location, both for counterintelligence and safety reasons. Um, so looking back, you know, we didn't have that, that, uh, uh, control, um, it was a warning indicator, but again, not, not terribly unusual. And ultimately we did uh, agree on a location and it, this was something that we proposed.
0: And how was the location of the meeting chosen and wh- where did it end up happening? Sure.
1: So, so um, you know, and, and again, working with the Jordanians, we proposed the meeting to be held at uh, at a U.S. military base in uh, in coast Afghanistan. That's in you know, South Waziristan. Uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm sorry, right across the border from South Waziristan. So it's it's in proximity to South South Waziristan that he could cross over, and uh, and so you know it, it made sense to us from a logistical standpoint for his ability to travel, and also for for what we uh, uh, assess would be a more secure location.
0: So now, Mark, we get to the to the hard part here. Walk us through. Walk us through that day.
1: Sure. So so boy, what happened? So you know, th- there's. I think ultimately, and, and, you know, this is uh, something that, that, you know, in my 26 year career was certainly the darkest moment. So I've, I've thought about this a great deal, um, not only, you know, in the aftermath, but, but even now. So uh, I I think that ultimately there's a great deal of uncertainty um, as to why Balawi was not properly searched before, you know, coming on to, to Coast Base. That was, that was part of the operational plan. And it's something to, you know, to this day, I, I, I and, and no one else um, can explain because uh, everyone who kind of was involved in those des- those decisions were uh, were unfortunately killed. So, you know, I was assured So that- it
0: was in the plan that he so it was in the plan that he was supposed to be searched before he got onto the base. Right.
1: And and in fact, there was there's multiple layers of security. So, you know, when you when you look back to what occurred, it's 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 pretty remarkable um, because there there would not be just one search. There would actually be several uh uh along the way you know no one thought this was going to be you know uh, uh, you know sitting down you know and having a picnic or a barbecue um with someone you know not only we had never met but someone who had just been in, in who had who we thought infiltrated you know the most dangerous ter- terrorist group on the planet but ultimately you know this the, the security protocols broke down and he was he was he was treated as a as almost a visiting dignitary again to this day it kind of defies belief to me that that's what uh, uh, occurred you know what more can can, can really be said on that. You know, uh, uh we let our guard down on this and, and how it happened is just something that I think, uh, we'll never know. And I, and I, and I th- and I say this painfully too, because I knew all the officers involved. Um, you know, there was a top notch people on the ground. There was a, a crack kind of security team we had. I would even to this day have trusted my life with every one of those members of the CIA team on the ground. Um, again, several rings of security where he should have been searched and, uh, and it could have been done. And still
0: so he, so go ahead. So he pulls up, right? He pulls up in a car. He has a driver and he's in the back seat. And he pulls up in a car and there's a number of officers waiting for him. He gets out of the car. What happens?
1: Right. So there was a, there was, so again, there were several rings of security where he should have been searched. He wasn't. He comes up to a location in which I believe a dozen officers um, uh, uh, were present. At that point, our security team did ask. Um, for him to step out of the car, and they were going to search him, the problem is there was you know this was this was far too close to uh to the kind of the team that was on the ground and and before they could uh uh you know uh, disarm him in any fashion you know he 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 had a suicide vest on and he detonated himself, and seven of them were killed um you know and 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 look you know i've i 've been to that location at coast base in fact, I was there a year later and, and there were still shrapnel holes kind of in the corrugated steel roof. Um, it's, you know, I slept in a guest house right there uh, on site, which was certainly difficult psychologically for me, but, um, but you know, there, so there, there was the, the, there was an attempt to search him, uh, at the last moment, but it was, uh, it was far too late. Um, he should have been searched, you know, by not only by us personnel, but frankly, by Afghan personnel, um, in the outer ring of security that should have been done far earlier, And that was kind of normal protocols that for whatever reason to this day, um, no one can really understand why they were not followed.
0: So, Mark, I remember when I went to Coast, probably about a year after as well, and I saw the same. I saw the same holes that you did. In fact, I saw some holes in the steel I beams by the ball bearings that, that uh, right. were part of uh, uh, uh suicide vest. So, so how did you first hear about this?
1: Um, so okay, so again, and you know, I just have to be careful because I, you know, not revealing the location where I was. But, you know, so we, I was, you know, uh, along with several others, we were monitoring the meeting, kind of real time. Um, and all of a sudden our, our communications kind of go silent. Um, they went dark and, and I remember I had, a, I had several officers, um, and, and you have to understand, and you know, this quite well, but for kind of the listeners that, you know, the CIA is a small place. So I knew, uh, you know, a lot of the people on the ground and the officers I had around me, uh, did as well. Um, but the communications went dark and, you know, you start to get a, a bad feeling and, you know, it's one of the times where, you know, the hair on the back of your neck, um, kind of stands up and. And a bit of nausea sinks in and, and I remember I cleared the room. Um and I, I really I think I left one officer with me. Um and then I received a secure call um from a senior official, um, you know, one of our you know top and most respected operational leaders. Um and you know, he said something to me that I'll I'll never forget. He kinda told me, you know, Mark sit down. Um uh and he said they're all gone. You know, uh, you know, and uh, you know, I'll say the name Darren Labonte was one of them. He was he was an officer who uh, it was my officer, uh, said Darren and the six others were killed. And so, you know, this the, so he said that, you know, Balawi the, the, was obviously a double agent and he, and he blew our team up. Um, but, but this, the senior officer to me said something that was really important and that I, that I'll never forget. And he said, look, there's going to be a time to grieve, but right now you have to get up and stand in front of your people. And that was several hundred people in a station in which I managed. Um, and you're going to have to show strength and you're going to have to leave and you're going to have to lead. Uh, and so that was it. And I, uh, you know, I, I put the phone down and, and in fact, my, my wife really relays the story that I then walked in. I called a kind of a snap meeting of several hundred officers. And she said, you know, she might, I I'd gone white in the face and she knew something awful had occurred and she just, um, you know, immediately said, you know, who died and, uh, and uh, sorry, I'm getting choked up here. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, it, and, and I, and I said that it, it was, uh, it was Darren and she started crying and, you know that all hands meeting um, that I called. I think that was the hardest leadership moment of my life. Um, you know these people knew Darren really well, and and uh, you know they were they broke down and started crying. I mean it was it was it was agonizing. Um, you know I felt sad, I felt angry, and then of course you know this overwhelming sense of responsibility. Um, and what happened is you know and then I didn't take care of myself. I didn't sleep or eat for about forty eight hours. I was totally dehydrated and ended up um, with kidney stones in the hospital in a, in a Middle Eastern country. So. Um, that was a, that was certainly a tough time.
0: So, Mark, how many of the seven officers who died did you know?
1: So you know with the, obviously you know, I talked about Darren Lebani and Darren worked for me. Um, you know, we knew his his family very well, his wife and his daughter, in fact, you know the the I think it was the the week before we died the week the week before Darren died, um, but he was he was deployed. Um, you know, we watched his his wife, who's an accomplished dancer, you know, dance the lead in the nutcracker in the location where we were. Um, I met Jennifer Matthews, the, the base chief at a, at a, the chief of station seminar the previous summer. Um, some of the injured officers involved, I had known you know tangentially, but professionally. But it really was an all star team of our uh, of our counter terrorist community, and and you know the loss of the, of all of them um, was almost indescribable. You know both personal for us because we knew them, but also in terms of the, uh, you know the expertise that we lost. Um, it was uh, it was it was pretty 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 stunning.
0: What was what was Darren like as a person?
1: Sure. So so you know Darren, you know to to many of us, uh, and again, I was his uh, one of his managers. But he was he was a superhero. You know, he was an amazing athlete. Um, He was a baseball player in high school who had actually had an offer from the Cleveland Indians, but he ended up enlisting in the army. He became an army ranger. He had this remarkable career after that with kind of the alphabet soup of the intelligence and national security communities. You know, he was. He was a he was, well. I think he was a cop as well. He was an FBI agent. He was U.S. Marshal, and then he finally settled on on the CIA. Um, you know, he was he was smart. He was tough. He was you know indefatigable in his commitment to the CT fight. Great husband and father, and uh, and so really his loss was almost it was a seismic event. Um, you know, he was just that good an officer and that that, that good a human being.
0: Mark, did you go to any of the memorial services? Sure. Sure.
1: So we, I, you know, I flew home from the Middle East for the, for the, that's the service where, you know, I, I know you were there where president Obama came to headquarters. I think I ended up sitting next to Obama's chief of staff. In fact, it was a very surreal time. And um, I went to, of course, Darren's service in Baltimore. That was excruciating and it, and, and that much of it was a blur and then, you know, not something I'm, I, I think I couldn't do anymore. I, I couldn't actually, it was, it was too hard for me to to, to go to any of the other services. But, you know, we, we really try to stay in touch with uh, the Labonte family and um, you know, we've, we've certainly gone to the CIA memorial service, the annual one each year and, and, uh, and, and, you know, kind of trying to try to honor Darren and uh, and the others who were killed.
0: You know, I, um, I went to a handful of the services and I remember all of them, like they were yesterday, but the one, that I remember in particular was for one of our officers named Harold Brown, who was from a small town outside of Boston. And there was a funeral mass, and then we drove from the church to the cemetery. And as we left the church for the cemetery, I saw a family, a mother, a father, and three children who were just standing on their front porch at attention with their hands over their hearts. And then after a few more blocks, there were additional people standing in honor, you know, at driveways in intersections along the road, families, scout groups, civic groups, you know, lone individuals who just stopped their car and got out. Right. The crowds grew closer as we got closer to the, to the cemetery. And there probably was a thousand people at the end of the day standing it was 15 degrees. It was, you know, January. It was very, very cold. This was, like I said, in Boston and people were holding American flags and many had their hands on their hearts and some had signs that simply said, thank you for keeping us safe. So, you know, I'll never, I'll never forget any of those. Now I'm choking up. So Mark, just a, a couple of more questions in the few minutes we have left here you and I both know that the operation in the aftermath was scrubbed with a wire brush, right? Looking at every aspect of the operation, looking for lessons learned. What do you think were the most important lessons learned from that experience?
1: Sure. You know, and, and I think that, that it's quite obvious that we made mistakes. So, so, you know, uh, that is, that is, you know, something that is, you know, without, uh, without question because, you know, ultimately, we got beat by Al Qaeda. You know, we thought that they could not run a double agent at us. Uh, you know, with an ability to provide, you know, feeder material like you would see from the Russians or the Chinese, but they did. And so, so, and those mistakes are, are, I think, it's it's pretty pretty easy and clear to figure out along the way some of the warning signs. But but it, you know, the most important lesson I really took from this is is one that is a little more kind of nebulous: is that you have to practice some humility. You know, and, and I and I I talk and write about leadership a lot, and I think a really critical trait for this for operational success is 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 just that to practice humility. You know, you can't believe your own hype. You know, we had tremendous CT success, and so I think that uh, uh, you know that that lack of humility humility really hurt us. You know, you got to keep an open mind to other suggestions or courses of action. Uh, and again, we made critical mistakes. You know, as the signs in retrospect were there. But let's go back to kind of the ultimate or, or, or kind of the key point is that, that ultimately we did have to meet him. So we're not having this conversation if the first ring of security in Afghan, unfortunately, would have searched Balawi. Um, none of this, none of this happens. So, so, so ultimately it's, you know, you're going back to kind of security protocols. I mean, that's something that we really took uh, in terms of lessons learned. I remember years later as a senior operational manager, I was deputy operations chief for the entire Middle East and writing Cables to stations, you know, you know, making sure that when they had high threat meetings, that their protocols, you know, were in place. So I think that's a that's a, you know, just a, a huge lesson. But again, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the practicing humility is something that I think, you know, everyone could could use a good dose of.
0: I think we also have to remember that this was the first time in the history of CIA that an agent killed his or her case officer, his or her operations right. officer. So it hadn't happened before. So, Mark, one last question. There is a concept that's very important to both you and to me, and you know, kind of think of it as never forgetting. Can you talk about that a little bit? Right,
1: you know, this is, and this is something that I think that's near and dear to both of our hearts, and and, and I, you know, I'll, I'll just you know tell the the audience a story because because both of us were there with Darren's parents, and we promised, especially Darren's mom, that we would never let the agency family forget them. And I think that that concept of never forgetting is really important when when officers are lost uh, in the line of duty. And, you know, this really was a specific worry from Darren's mom and it was heartbreaking, but she would ask, you know, because there was so much, there was an outpouring of support, but she'd ask, you know, how about five years from now? So, you know, as a matter of fact, you and I, you know, did go down, you know, well after um, these events to down to Florida to see the, see the family to, you know, they held a memorial dinner, Memorial Foundation dinner down in Florida. and, And we went and we spoke there and, and I tell you, you, know we still keep in contact with the, the with the Levanti family. They're really the strongest and toughest people that I know. And you know, my family. We visit Darren's grave each year uh, at Arlington on on December thirtieth, um, two thousand nine. And I don't even tell the story that you know Darren's mom gave us Darren's little league baseball card. And my son, who's a high school catcher, is going off to play college baseball. He carries that baseball card mm-hmm. in his wallet mm-hmm. um, uh, just to uh, to remember Darren. So you know, that's how you, you never forget. Um, you just have to kind of simply kind of remind the world as much as possible um, uh, about Darren and of course, and the other six, you know,
0: heroes who died that day. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing the story with us. Thank you. Thank you, Michael. That was Mark Polymeropoulos. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go.